Welcome to Heart of the Enneagram. I'm Chris Copeland. And I'm Sandra Smith. And we invite you to take a courageous and loving look at what is. We've all learned our types now. The real work is the spiritual work. And so begin talking about how personality is developed for all kinds of good reasons. And the work is to claim, uh, is to begin to receive really these holy ideas. Hey, Sandra. Good afternoon, Chris, and welcome back to Asheville. Thank you. It's always good to be together, and I'm excited about uh, this episode in uh, season four right. uh, as we've been exploring myths and questions, and today we're having a, a great conversation about a particular question we keep getting. We do keep getting the question about, you know, does my uh, sexuality, does my nationality, my race, my age, my sex, does it change my Enneagram type? Mm-hmm. And How does what, it impact it? Exactly. Yeah. What impact does that have? Mm-hmm. And so we uh, we actually have a guest to help us think about that today, right? Yes, we do. And I'm really tickled to invite and welcome Kevin Young to be with us. And Kevin um, is a former collegiate basketball player and has been an HR professional for over 25 years. Kevin's worked primarily in manufacturing and is currently the employee relations manager at the Biltmore Company, and that's where Kevin and I met. He's done some Enneagram work there at the Biltmore Company, and they just love him there. So, Kevin, thanks for being a guest on this podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, um, I will, when I teach the Enneagram, um, I often talk about the, this intersection of, of Enneagram and culture because of this question I get a number of times. And the way that I talk about that is, you know, we've talked a lot in this podcast, Sandra, about what type is about motivation, not behavior. And often um, people get confused because they look at the observable behavior. And what we often say is, you know, go down to motivation because that really is what points to type. And so uh, across cultural diversity, gender, race, sexuality, nationality, where you're from, family systems. I think the best way to think about this is that motivation is what is consistent for types in those various different uh, aspects and um, roles and places that we find ourselves, but the behavior is gonna look different. Uh, The other thing I like to remind folks is that certain cultures privilege certain ways of being and other cultures will shun or um, put down other, not value particular ways of being. So sometimes in particular cultures, it can be difficult to discern type because of that. So sometimes an example I'll use is like someone who is leads with type one, whose motivation is to reform and improve. What the behavior looks like in Japanese culture, for example, is gonna look different from somebody who grew up in Nigeria, for example. So like the motivation remains the same, but the behavior and how that manifests is gonna look different. So to begin this conversation, uh, Kevin, I just wanted to pose the question to you. You lead with type eight. How do you, how do you most know, what, what tells you that you lead with type eight as you began exploring this system? Well, the leading thing that says I'm a type eight is I respond to challenges mm. and there's no challenge too great for me. I can recall, um, being at basketball camp, uh, going from my junior to senior year in high school. And there was this real tough coach um, out of Florida 
really rode me hard that week. <laughs> well, on the first day, I really twisted my ankle really badly. Hairline fractured it. Mm. Wow. And he challenged me. He says, you won't come back next week because you, you're not that kind of guy. So mm. next Sunday, I came back. And at the end of that week, I won the MVP of the other camp. Oh, so wow. I've never shied away from a challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the real defining point with me. <laughs> I also hear a little bit in there of like, you can't tell me what I can or can't do. I don't know if that's right. <laughs> Correct. <with> you. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Well, growing up the way I did uh, in Hendersonville, a small town here in the mountains of Western North Carolina, uh, there was a lot of people trying to tell me what I couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And some of, some of the societal cues were, you can't be successful because you're from this place. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge motivator as well. I just couldn't believe that I couldn't do, be, or say, or just be whatever I wanted to be. And that was the major motivator. Mm -hmm. Were those messages coming uh, related to where you said where you grew up? Was it partly about race? Was it partly about other aspects of your identity that you would hear those kind of messages? Yeah, it was about race, uh, particularly. And I got it from both sides, actually. Mm -hmm. I was um, one of those kids that went to Head Start. Mm -hmm. And my mother saw that as an advantage, and she made me take advantage of that. <laughs> so I found okay. myself being the only black kid in the class, mm -hmm. and all of my other black friends were in two of the other five classes that there were. And so over time, I began to get ostracized by both races. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. t one time, I'm Uncle Tom to my black friends, and then I was his, well, you know what they used to like to call us back in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Then I was that to the other segment of the population. So you know, it took me a minute to really carve out how I was going to succeed, but yeah. I knew I would. Mm. That's that clarity I hear, the clarity, but I will succeed mm. by God. Well, and, yes. the ch and the challenge that society gave you, you just weren't going to give up. Again, that I'm up, I'm up for it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I believe, too, that we choose our parents, we choose our situation before we come into this world. Mm -hmm. And I can look back and clearly see why I chose my situation mm. because... Um, I, I can say there have been a lot of people that tried to emulate me, and they've done well, too. Mm -hmm. And I think that if I hadn't been a, as tenacious as I was about life, my example might not have been as shining, and they might not have succeeded and sought me out for guidance. So, mm -hmm. And I really I do appreciate, it's not a burden, not a responsibility, but it's a joy to respond to the situation that way. Mm. That's yeah. beautiful, it Kevin. Is. It yeah. Is. So, Kevin, um, thinking about your learning of the Enneagram, uh, what's the impact that you're aware of about your own racial identity, your, your understanding of yourself as a black man, as a person of color, and how that intersects with the Enneagram? Well, there were two things I realized early on that I couldn't be. One was black and one was southern, if I wanted to get ahead in the business world. Mm. Did a lot of uh, interviewing over the phone. So I found a lot of doors being shut when they found out my particular dialect was showing through. Mm -hmm. So I had to be decisive in certain situations and I came across with my inflection of voice, came across um, very neutral, mm -hmm. which gave me opportunity. And then I had to be very presentable when I got the situ into the situation of mm -hmm. where the opportunity was. And so I think that because I wanted to be who I wanted to be, the person sitting across the desk was not going to be in my way either. Mm -hmm. So I think my race actually gave me an advantage in how I grew up 
because I use those keys, like um, the stereotype of big black man is scary. Yeah. Well, I take that and say <laughs> I might be scary, but <laughs> but then I change it once you get to know me, mm-hmm. and then my attributes and those things do shine through, and it, it's become very much of an attribute instead of a hindrance. What would you say are some of the gifts of your type 8 style that also supported you in that? You, you mentioned decisive in mm-hmm. a way. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a take charge kind of guy. Right. And all or nothing is how I live. I mean, my girlfriend will tell you that. She says, <laughs> you need to slow down a little bit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, all or nothing is how I live. And I think that's one of the major things people notice about me. I go into a job, I do it to the best of my ability, or I don't do it at all. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how I played basketball. That's how I have lived my life. That's how I've interacted with people. So what you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. We're either really in or we're kind of sitting back. Correct. Mm-hmm. Thank Correct. you. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, um, I just want to make sure I understand what you're talking about, talking on the phone. And uh, were you talking about like shifting your language, uh, shifting the way you talked on the phone in order to sort of get beyond people's prejudices? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, being Southern has its hindrances as well. Yep. Um, Southerners have a stigma of being dumb or whatever. Right. And now you throw black on top of that. Yep. <laughs> in those times when we mm-hmm. had those stigmas mm-hmm. we were living mm-hmm. down then as well. Mm-hmm. So my cousin used to live in D.C. and I visited quite a bit. And they have a very neutral accent mm-hmm. in D.C., so I emulated that that particular style, and it worked for me pretty mm-hmm. well. And, you know, I guess I'm a comedian as well because when I'm with some of the fellas I hang out with, and, you know, I, I'll, I'll shoot the dozens with them. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then if I'm somewhere else that requires another kind of a speech, then it comes naturally yeah. simply because of me being open to all of that stimulation, mm-hmm. not just close to any. Well, yeah. and, and body types, too. We have emerging energy, and we can match and pick up the energy of the other, and sometimes it, it works well because we can emulate a voice or a dialect in that way because yeah. we're merging with that energy. I also hear the, the language, the word code, uh, code switching, right, of like learning how I need to switch in order to be successful, in order to sort of sometimes survive, quite honestly, in certain contexts, I need to learn how to speak. And we all do this in certain kind of ways. We change the way we talk depending on our context. Does that resonate with you? Uh, Absolutely. Um, Normally in my career, I've been one of the only, if not two of other black people in the room, Mm -hmm. a a person of color or anything. So early on, I was one of the only person of color lacking gender in the room. Yeah. So, yeah, I had to understand um, how to get along with a good old boy across the table from me <laughs> and speak his language so mm-hmm. that, you know, I, that would not be a barrier and it would make him comfortable in getting over the stigma of me being this big, tall, scary black guy. Yeah. You And how would you say the Enneagram has helped you understand yourself more deeply? Any insights it's given you in the past several months since you've learned this system? Well, um, it's helped me with my blind spots. Um, understanding what they are, understanding what makes me tick, why I respond to a situation the way I may respond to it. It has helped me um, to circumvent some situations I may have been in. And 
you know, it's, I will say it has helped me in my personal relationships that um, some of the glaring things, some of the overwhelming things about me I've learned through this process and others, but this one most recently has put some icing on the cake, mm-hmm. that those things may need to shift a little bit and then be aware of who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. And then try to understand where they could be on the scale. That's kind of hard just from passing, mm-hmm. but sure. still you get certain cues mm-hmm. that you can still tailor yourself to where you're going to be effective when you speak to them or whatever kind of relationship you're going to have with that person mm-hmm. or how you, people. How you modulate energy, really, Absolutely. for us mm-hmm. as AIDS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what helps you tailor yourself? I think of, um, sometimes I think AIDS, you know, uh, we talk about the growth for AIDS is not sort of always being full on because that's sort of the natural tendency. And so learning how to sort of, what's the appropriate amount of force or energy to give in this moment. But what, what supported you? What's helped you do, learn to do that? Just getting bad results when I when I don't <laughs> when I don't self correct, you, know? <laughs> you know. I mean, and you know, they were bad results for me. They might not have been for others, but they weren't the results that I was desiring. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm thinking this is not what I want to manifest. So, what are the factors that are causing this to be skewed? Mm-hmm. And some of it is some of it is the manifestation of of the number eight. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's um, I don't know. It's just just has helped me ground myself, I suppose. Mm. I don't know how else to say it. I remember David Daniels saying to me one day, you know, Sandra, I'm not, we're not asking you to tamp down your energy. That's not what the eight, what we're wanting eights to do. But rather than go up and out, you can take that in and down and ground yourself so deeply. Um, and that's been really helpful to me. That was just a, a very gentle, kind thing to say. Don't tamp your energy down. Mm-hmm. Just take it down further into the ground. And we can do that. Yeah. How do you do that? I often, when I'm, when I'm getting reactive, I can lose uh, my feet and legs and all the energy comes up into my body very quickly, my upper body. And that's when I know I have to really take the energy down through my legs and feet into the earth and breathe down there. Mm. And that... How about you? Well, my my voice inflection rises. Mm -hmm. I can feel that. Mm -hmm. And that's where the energy manifests itself in my voice. Um, I never lose my cool outwardly, but my voice takes a couple of octaves up. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realize I need to kind of nail it back down because that then becomes a little bit scary to the person I'm addressing Mm -hmm. when my voice gets a little raised and don't want to ever be in that situation. Mm -hmm. I don't anyway. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. The, the big energy of the eight that you've had to really monitor because of real safety and reality of survival kinds of things. Well, I've, I've been sensitive to that my whole life. It didn't yeah. take mm-hmm. the Enneagram to make sure, me sensitive to that. Um, um, and I've been involved in interracial relationships the majority of my life, mm-hmm. and that in itself presents problems when you get pulled over by the cops. <laughs> yep. And yep. so, but I learned a lot just to... Yeah, tone it down. I, I can tell you, I was in upstate New York, and um, I was riding my motorcycle really fast. I had a Hayabusa. I don't know if you know what that is. Mm-mm. Suzuki Hayabusa was the fastest production motorcycle in the world for several years <laughs> running, right? I owned one of these machines. Now, I'm an all-or-nothing kind of guy, right? right? You can imagine how fast I might have been going. Well, I really was going about 178 miles an hour. Goodness. And I looked off in the distance and I saw a vehicle. Mm. 
and I'm thinking, what if that's a cop? Mm-hmm. So I closed the throttle, and it was a cop. And I saw the back end of his car kind of shift up like they do when they're aggressively putting on brakes. Mm-hmm. And he turned around. Well, by the time he got in there, I had taken my helmet off, gotten off the bike, had my license and registration handy for him, mm-hmm. and left my work badge dangling on purpose because mm-hmm. I worked for Borg Warner at the time. And we employed a whole lot of the people uh-huh. in the county. And he was very animated when he came. He had his hand on his gun and everything. Wow. And, I, and I'm wow. thinking, this might not go well, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm smiling when he comes, and I'm trying to do all the things I know to do to defuse the situation. Mm-hmm. And he comes up, and uh, he has his hand on his gun, and he says, do you know how fast you were going? And I made a joke. I said, uh, how fast did you clock me? Yeah, I clock you doing 127. I said, I'll take that. <laughs> oh, that was very smart. <laughs> and he said, okay, so he, are you legal? I said, yes, I'm legal. So he checked my, my license and registrations. He came back. He was calmed down, and he says, do you work at Borg Warner? I said, yeah, what do you do? So I'm the HR manager there. He says, really? So I know the HR, the, uh, HR is over safety at that spot. I said, yes, we are. I am. <laughs> and say, so you're not being very safe today. I said, no, I'm not. I said, but you know, we've had a long winter. We had 47 inches of snow in the backyard. You really know this. I said, and this is the first day we could ride. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I was just blowing it out. Mm. He hands me my license back, hands me my registration, and says, it's your lucky day. Oh. And he said, do you want to know why? I said, why? He said, because I was on my sport bike yesterday doing the same thing. Wow. But found a common thread. That's what I try to do Mm. in those situations. Mm -hmm. Um, I read a person and try to figure out some way to connect. Mm -hmm. And I do it decisively. And I'm all of a sudden down this path. And so I find that to be a very effective way for me to circumvent a lot of the situations I have been in. I've been shot at before. I've been um, almost run off the road because of who I chose to date. Mm. So I've come up with a lot of ways to protect myself. Yeah, yeah. So, well, and I hear the protection. I mean, I again, sometimes we think of the part of the way, way AIDS protect is in a forceful way, but that's not the only way, obviously. And what I hear you saying is there are different ways you've learned to protect. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's never, it's never been forceful for me. Mm-hmm. That was never a good idea for me, being as large as I am and um, as well, where I live. I mean, you get mm-hmm. beat down here if you mm-hmm. <laughs> try to get physical. Right. So it was better for me to talk yeah. and better for me to understand and better for me to listen. And the person who I might be with is better for me for them too mm-hmm. because it could get, I've seen it get ugly with other people. But yeah. I haven't had those kinds of, that, that many of those kinds of experiences. And I do, before I ever knew anything about my typing, I was very much in touch with how to protect that piece mm-hmm. of me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's powerful. You know, uh, type 8 is one of the other-oriented types. So we hear about other referencing for 2 and 9, but it's actually 2 and 6 and 8 are other-oriented types, really on the lookout, uh, each for different things. But 8s tend to be pretty aware of uh, people in the room or what's happening, um, just because there's a lack of trust with both 8 and 6. But 8 doesn't trust easily, and so we're looking out. Uh, is trouble coming? Well, I'm a little bit surprised I actually took this chair because I never sit with my back to the door. It's, that's the absolute mm-hmm. truth. But mm-hmm. 
feel a little comfortable here. It's okay, but any place I go, yeah, any place I go, though, uh-huh. I'm I'm always observing and looking and mm-hmm. understanding, sensing, and if there's danger, I'm looking for the way mm-hmm. that I can get. It. I ride my motorcycle the same way. Mm-hmm. You have to. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now that you say that, I realize I drive that way. Actually, where's my out? Mm-hmm. Where's my out? Mm. Oh, really? Say, can you say more about yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I ride. I've been riding for forty-seven years or so, and um, I've always thought about. I've seen people get really messed up in wrecks. I've seen people killed, mm. and so I become very aware of needing an out. Mm. And I'm looking, scanning all the time to see if someone's coming up on me, if I'm doing this right or wrong, and if there's a way I can accelerate and get out of a situation. I'm going to be the aggressor and do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm decisive. Boom, I'm hitting the throttle really hard. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm always scanning because I'm very cognizant of what could happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm also cognizant of where my options are. What's it like, Kevin, um, for you, um, does the word, when I use the word soften, becoming soft or becoming more receptive, is that something that you uh, find that you're able to do or does that resonate with you in any way? I'm very in touch with the side of me that is, that is feminine. Yeah. I'm not afraid of my emotions. Um, I command them when I need to. Mm. I let them show when they need to. So the softening for me has been a very natural thing. Mm. Um, and it is because I'm I'm a rather large person, and I don't want anyone to be afraid of me. It's important that people accept me for for me and get to know me. And I really get offended when people don't. You know, I don't understand people at work that don't like me. I don't understand it because I'm such a nice guy. You know, but but it's it's not me. I find out it's something they have that they're projecting on me. So mm-hmm. I can get away. I can you know I'm okay with it, but. The softening is just something that has come naturally mm-hmm. because of my upbringing and the things I've been been bombarded with. Yeah. Uh, at an early age, I had an experience that just let me know that you know it's more to life than this life, mm-hmm. and that there's more to Christianity than what's put out there. And mm-hmm. I was born and raised in a Southern Baptist m- church. My mother played the piano at a Baptist church for 75 years. Wow. You can imagine I was on every choir you could think of. Mm-hmm. You know all the hymns. <laughs> I know all the hymns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but through all that, it just let me know that there's another truth out there. Mm-hmm. And part of that is how we come and what we do and how we respond and to the energy that we can't always see and perceive with our senses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. You know, uh, Sandra said that you asked this question in a workshop about um, what's the impact of race on the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. Um, have, do you have any thoughts about that as you've thought about that and experienced the Enneagram? You know, I, I was just wondering if, you know, the interpretations that happen from the people who do the research, mm-hmm. they all have a certain experience. Exactly. And I don't know, but I can almost say that some of this research wasn't done by people of color or minorities. Yep. So I was wondering what kind of filter that those people may have had to say that it absolutely does transcend because I, I challenged Sandra on, you know, I don't know. It just, I get why it works for me, but I, 
I don't know about some of the the black people I know. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and of course, it uh, the beauty of this system is it actually um, the personality system began in Bolivia, and so uh, I love that piece that it didn't start in the United States. It wasn't some Eurocentric kind of system. Yeah, with white people, it started with the brown people. And I mean, I think the other thing is what, at least from the practice of teaching the Enneagram around mm -hmm. the world what teachers have noticed in China and South Africa and uh, Russia and India is that there are these the sort of the types tend to be tend to be universal. Now I I bristle a little bit at the universal sense because I resonate with you in terms of everybody looks through things looks at things through a particular lens because of their culture and background and all that. But it's been pretty amazing as it has been taught how it has been consistent type across mm -hmm. multitudes of cultures. So that's sort of in practical terms, that's part of what we've been learning. But your question is a good one because I think that a lot of the most of the writers and the researchers and the teachers these days are mostly white people. Mm -hmm. And so the At least way in this country. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, United States. So the way it gets talked about, one of my um, things I wrestle with sometimes is some of the language we use around the Enneagram. Um, it can feel um, that it only speaks to people of a certain intellectual training or capacity. And so I'm really trying to push on how we talk about language and is this applicable to everybody and can this be accessible to no matter what kind of education you've had or background or um, culture. And I think there's an inherent resistance when black people see these types of programs and things that happen like this um, into thinking that it has one interpretation. Mm, yep. Mm -hmm. and sure. You know, we got so many other stereotypes we deal with that we don't need another one, and it's not sometimes not presented the way that it maybe it should be. Mm -hmm. And you got Myers Briggs, you got all these other things out there that are very sometimes in my mind subjective. Mm -hmm. um, but I've you know I've thought about that whole thing a whole lot since we talked, right. and she challenged me back, and I've been noticing, and you know maybe there is. And then taking it from I chose what I wanted, how I wanted to come here. Mm -hmm. If you've that's the thing that's really kind of led me to another understanding, because I think um, the way that most blacks in America have been raised is through the church, mm -hmm. and we have certain things that we were frightened by, you know, the hellfire and brimstone type aspect. If you don't do this, then this, mm -hmm. and once you get someone past that thought but getting them past that thought to think that this could work, the Enneagram could apply to them, there's a whole lot of filtering that we do, in my opinion, not speaking for every black person, <laughs> but there's a whole right. lot of that I would have done, that I have done mm -hmm. <clears throat> through the filters of, of those things. The Divinity School where I teach, 45% um, uh, of our students are students of color, um, mostly uh, black but we are, and also Hispanic and um, in Asian, and I teach this course on spirituality of the Enneagram, and I find that um, in a way that content of the Enneagram is universal regardless of race, and there's certain language I use, and it particularly um, certain church language where certain uh, groups identify more and resonate more. I've noticed that, that similarity and difference in the class, which has been really fascinating. That's what I've noticed too, and, and, and I think you're right because that's some of the things that some of the businesses I work with don't get that the language that they use 
you know, you understand it, but is your target audience understanding it? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it doesn't. There are plenty of teachers out there, mm -hmm. but I tend to resonate towards the one who's more of a preacher type. But I like it because that's what I came up with. But when we talk, we come together with a resonance that's so bonding that, you know, we can hear each other. Yeah. You know, and I think that's kind of how the Enneagram may be presented to some people of color mm -hmm. um, in a way that they can understand sort of resonate. Because I do believe that when you come at it from different angles, I know when Sandra and I talk, I walk away with a really, really good feeling. Yeah. And I know we've connected on some level mm -hmm. with the topic. Mm -hmm. So, and it's been really helpful for me in my, in my work with, um, with the Biltmore Company. Yeah. Um, they have a lot of different types. And I'm talking to people all over the estate and I'm finding myself leaving the Enneagram, my copy, say, hey, look, read it, check this out, because I want to get back with them because I'm having a communication issue, mm. and I want to know how to mm. come back and connect with them. Mm. Nice, Kevin. That is a compassionate use of the Enneagram right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If if you can share with me the type that you lead with, I can, I can better communicate with you because I may know what your ears are listening for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like we ace, we're, we're, whether we know it or not, we're always listening for fairness or unfairness, right? right? Mm -hmm. The slant of our ears with our type, right? Yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about or share um, that's come up for you in this conversation? I'm more interested in, you know, your work at, at Wake mm -hmm. and um, talking about the experience that you're, you're people of color are yeah. having. Yeah. I would like to hear more about how they feel about it and if it's resonating with them in the way that you would like for it to mm -hmm. and as a way that's productive for them. Yeah, it's nice. a great question. Yeah. It's a great question. I just finished teaching a course this past week uh, on spirituality of the Enneagram. And uh, I'm, one of the things I noticed was when one of the areas of the Enneagram we talk about is um, our holy ideas, or we talk about this enlightened spiritual perspective. And these are ideas of like, you know, that... Uh, all things belong, uh, that, um, that we are all connected. It's sort of these, these larger concepts of, of larger truths, and there are particular ones for each of the nine types. And as I was sharing those, one of the things I noticed, which was really interesting, because I was using, sometimes I was using God language. For example, um, I, am, I cannot be separated from God, was what the four might say as a part of the, the holy idea or the enlightened spiritual perspective. Mm -hmm. Or for the... Um, or for the one, it's like God sees me as perfect or as whole. Um, and what I was noticing was students of color, the energy in the room was rising for them. And like, and and sometimes I would throw out a scripture text that would connect with that. They would throw scripture text back at me. Mm. The white students in the room were looking at me with great skepticism. Mm -hmm. uh, they were like, mm, we're not buying this whole like you know, God is in all this. It's all connected. The world is perfect. They were like, oh, we're not sure about that. I, I just found that so fascinating. And I, but I left that day, uh, and the students said this. Um, they said it was like the Holy Spirit was moving in the classroom that day. There was just this energy that just grew and grew and grew. And it, part of it was I was preaching a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I was feeding, I was, they were, I was getting this call and response, right? And the energy was building in me, and it was building in the class. And it was really, really sacred and beautiful. And I remarked about the difference in how students responded. It wasn't just about race, but that was certainly a, an aspect that I noticed. Mm -hmm. Oh, what an exciting 
class that was that day, Chris. It was it was a holy. It's beautiful. It was a holy moment. Mm-hmm. It was. It, it was the like part it. at which I said, "We've all learned our types. Now the real work is the spiritual work," and so began talking about how personality is developed for all kinds of good reasons, and the work is to claim. Uh, it's to begin to receive really these holy ideas, mm-hmm. and uh, and as I began talking about it, they just it was electric. Mm. It was electric. Beautiful, yeah. Mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah, I had a student, um, uh, a couple of different students, but one in particular said, you know, every every seminary student should, every divinity school student should take this class because I know more about who I am and what makes me tick. And it ha- connects with my theology as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody should have to take this. So I said, okay. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's a valid point, especially for me, because if you can tap into that we are all integrated instead of the separation of mm-hmm. God, you, and all of that, mm-hmm. that we all really are interconnected, I think that's one of the biggest hurdles that I had to come, come past. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of guilt with us. And um, that's how, I mean, if you think about the whole way that the the slave system worked, it worked on a system of guilt. That's right. And um, we kept ourselves down on a system mm-hmm. of guilt mm-hmm. and, uh, and less and preaching basically poverty. There is an awakening mm-hmm. that we should not be teaching that. Mm-hmm. So now we're teaching more of a prosperity type base message. But there's a whole lot of skid marks to overcome mm-hmm. from that other that other message, yep. mm-hmm. which of course was used by the white people in power, absolutely, in order to keep slaves where they were. And that's why people say, "Well, why didn't they just uprise?" Well, mm-hmm. you know, you teach fear; yeah. fear will keep you inhibited. That's right. And that's what happened. That's mm-hmm. exactly. That happens still. Yep. Yeah. So. Well, you know that foundational theological question, "Who am I?" is a part of your journey and my journey. Mm-hmm. And it's what Chris was saying as we tie personality and spirituality together. They just so fit hand in glove. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to pull them apart now. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's made a huge difference in my life. I mean, I don't carry the guilt around. Um, and it's okay for me to be decisive. And it's okay for me to, to take control. And it's okay for me to live like I live because the guilt of living that way has been reduced or diminished mm-hmm. because of the things I'm learning. And my personality type being an eight, I mean, I kind of knew I, I knew all those things. I just need somebody to put an eight on it. And the path, you know, to kind of balance that yeah, energy. Yeah. Absolutely. But the, yeah. the things for me, though, the things that, the, the things, the flanking things. Right, your connection to five and two. Yeah, right. that to me has been a lot more helpful than anything mm-hmm. to understand that um, those things really impact because I can see myself fluctuating in some of the right. detaching mm-hmm. and observing way too much sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that has also helped me expound upon who mm-hmm. I am and how powerful I really am. Mm-hmm. And I think it's okay to say that. I'm powerful. So are yeah. you. And so are you. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and that really comes to us in beautiful ways when we access the gifts of those resource points that you just mentioned, the five, the two your wings, seven and nine. Accessing all those gifts just makes us come into who we were created to be. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, it's good to spend time with you, Kevin. Absolutely. I appreciate this opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So with heartfelt gratitude, I'm Chris. And I'm Sandra. And we invite you to continue to take a courageous and loving look 
at what is. We want to thank all who've made this podcast a reality, including Wake Forest University School of Divinity for their financial and institutional support. For Sally Ann Morris, who composed our theme music, and for Toby Becker, who provided graphic design. Thanks to Eric Merle for his editing expertise, to Tom and Lynn Berner, who provided recording space, and to the narrative Enneagram and our mentors, Helen Palmer and Dr. David Daniels, its founders. And special thanks to all of our guests. We offer this podcast as a free resource for personal and spiritual growth. And in order to continue this work, we need your support. Please visit our website, heartoftheenneagram.com, to make a contribution and to purchase our companion book. In the days that lie ahead, may your mind be curious, your heart courageous, and your presence compassionate.